pattern that has been preserved for thousands of years for us so that we not only see God's regularity in his faithfulness, but also where he steps into history and acts on our behalf. This pattern, as you noticed, leads to a lot of uh, repetition, as you heard as Paul read the passage for us this morning. But it has a very regular pattern, and that's very intentional. We learn six facts about each one of these men in our list. We learn how long they live before they give birth to a son, particularly a seed son, the son of promise. We learn who it is that they are the father of. We learn how many years they live after giving birth. This is going to be particularly important, these double dates, for verifying that this is a true and trustworthy genealogy. We also learn that they have other sons and daughters, that these children were not only children, but that the earth was becoming populated. In fact, conservative estimates allow for up to about 7 billion people being on the earth before the flood. That's with the bare minimum amount of children allowed by the text. That's five children per person for about 1,600 years. Add in death, which is now part of nature, you might get a few less, but if any of those have more children than five, in their 187 years of birthing, or 500 if we add the outlier, Noah. How many people may have been on this earth before the flood. It probably was not a small population of people that was wiped out in the flood, but a judgment of an earth much like ours today. Who knows what kind of technology they had, but the population growth was similar. We learn that information by seeing that these were not only children, but that mankind truly did have their pregnancies and births amplified. We also learn how old these patriarchs were when they died. These numbers are consistent. The age before a child was born and the years lived after a child was born without deviation, without failure, adds up to that number given in the text for their total age. We also learn that each one of these patriarchs died save for one. That's an outlier. So who are these regular, uh, who fits the regular pattern? Seth fits this regular pattern. He lived 105 years and he gave birth to a son named Enosh and then he lived 807 more years for a total of 912 years. And then he died. Enosh lived 90 years before giving birth to Kenan, and then 850 more years for a total of 905 years. Kenan lived 70 years before giving birth to Mahalalel, who lived another 840 years for a total of 910, the same for Mahalalel, 65 years giving birth to Jared, and the first recorded patriarch who lives less than 900 years he lives 895 years. This one, there's no irregularities, but he is an outlier in that his age is much larger than his father's. Jared lived 162 years and then gave birth to Enoch. He lived 800 more years for a total of 962 years. And then Methuselah lived 187 years before giving birth to Lamech, a different Lamech than who was in the line of Cain. He lived 782 more years for a total of 969 years, making him the longest living recorded patriarch. We don't know, someone could have lived longer than Methuselah, but he was not a seed son, and so was not preserved in this text. But this is the longest living preserved record of human longevity. 
we're going to talk about the trustworthiness of these ages, why we take God's word at face value and how important it is for our faith to take him at face value and how it's not a leap of faith either. In fact, it's much more a leap of faith to trust man's word over God's. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve took that leap of faith, trusting man's word over God's. And where did that get them? We want to trust God's word. But there are a few remarkable, actually they're all quite remarkable, but remarkable in the sense that we are going to make remarks about them. And this goes back to what I call the Shakespeare principle. Now I did coin this phrase, so perhaps it's not the best phrase, but uh, the Shakespeare principle says that we are going to pay attention to deviations. When God has prepared a pattern for us, when he breaks that pattern, we pay attention. That's why last week we spent a whole sermon looking at Adam's name in this list. Because Adam does break this pattern. Though he is the first one in this list, the rest of the pattern is not precisely as his is. Because a little bit of extra information is added into his entry in this list. For him, it says that a son in his own likeness was born. A son according to his own image, and he was named Seth. This gives us information that man was no longer being born only in the image of God, but in the image of fallen mankind as well. That fallen human nature is being transferred generation to generation. This is important information for us to understand that this began with Adam. This isn't some addition later on. It didn't begin at the flood either. Man took on human nature from the very first son ever born. <clears throat> Enoch's entry is also quite different. We're going to spend a week looking at Enoch because he walked with God for 300 years and then he was no more because God took him. This is also going to be a message of hope because it points towards what we look for, what we hope for, what we anticipate. That if we do not die in the Lord, we will at least be translated in the Lord. We will be taken away from this earth before judgment strikes. Enoch gives us hope for our promise of the rapture. Lamech's entry is also different, but his is looking forward to Noah. But we can see something about Lamech's faith. When he gives birth to Noah, he names Noah and then tells us why he named him Noah. He says, this one will give us rest. That's the meaning of Noah's name is rest. From our work and from the toil of our hands, from the ground which the Lord has cursed. They're all anticipating some sort of promise, aren't they? Now, I'm purposefully avoiding giving you the meanings of all of the names in this list this week because I want you to focus on the fact that these are real men. Yes, their names do mean something. And yes, it's important to look at that because it's in the text. But let's not forget, these are actual historical figures. Their names are monikers for human beings that actually walked to this earth, that were part of God's fulfilled promise. Noah is an outlier as well, because not only do we get three sons of his listed, but we spend three chapters of interlude in his genealogy. His genealogy doesn't finish until the last verses of chapter 9, where it finally tells us how old he was when he died. That means that all of Genesis 6.1 through 9.27 is that outlier information about Noah that we are supposed to pay attention to. Also for Noah, he is the only one in this record of 10 that has no other children listed besides the one who are in the text. That means there is no textual indication that he had any sons besides these three which are recorded. He may have, but the text does not tell us that he did, and he is the only one for which that is true. So you'll see that we have a couple of weeks that we're going to spend in this genealogy. And that's not a waste of time. The text has pointed towards some of these men and the events of their lives and how God worked in their lives. 
But we also are not going to focus just on the outliers. Just as many of Shakespeare's sonnets did not deviate from the pattern at all. That does not mean that they are not unique and special as well. Each one of these men in the list, even if nothing special is pulled out about them, the fact that they give us a pattern of God's faithfulness is important to spend time observing. So that's what we are doing this morning. But before we do that, we want to look at the trustworthiness of God's word. Now, I will admit, though I do think this is a good title because it gets your attention, uh, this was the only word that I could find that meant trustworthiness that began with a P. So it's not just to get your attention. <laughs> but this word, pukka, is a British slang that means genuine. They took it from the Hindi word paka, which means solid. And then the English speakers applied this word for sound and reliable from the sense of solid, from this Hindi word. So hopefully that got your attention. Because this is a trustworthy record. It is a genuine record. These dates are trustworthy. These ages are trustworthy, and they add to our hope. First, we can see the testament of arithmetic to God's word. God is the God of mathematics as well as the God of language. He gave us the ability to use mathematics, and it is a reflection of him. What animal do you know who can use mathematics? Perhaps simple addition perhaps recognition only that one dog got more treats than the other. But who could add the ages of patriarchs together to see God's record of faithfulness? Mankind, and mankind alone. God has gone through painstaking efforts to show us that his word is trustworthy. This is the only genealogy in which we get three specific dates for each man's lives. In Genesis 11, we're going to get another genealogy, but we only get the first two dates, the X and the Y, how old they were when their son was born, and how many years remained after. The dates are not added for us in the text in Genesis 11, but they are in Genesis 5 because God is setting a precedent. The genealogies are trustworthy. In fact, the genealogies are the skeleton around which all of scripture is built. We tend to skip over them. And you know, it's pretty hard to do a devotion in the book of Numbers. There are some really good passages for devotional studies, but a lot of it is list after list after list of what? Of God's faithfulness towards Israel. That itself is devotional, but it is hard to take just a chunk of those names and have a devotional study over it without becoming allegorical. But you might be wondering, how is it that these numbers help us to be sure of these patriarchs' ages? Because we also use these patriarchs' ages to date the earth. And we do so, I believe, with relative accuracy. But some have proposed that perhaps there are gaps in this genealogy. And they do that because the book of Matthew gives us a genealogy with obvious gaps. But those gaps are also purposeful. Those gaps point towards Jesus Christ as the promised son of David. And so the pattern of 14 names, 14 being the number of David's name in Hebrew gematria, points towards the veracity of Jesus Christ as the son of David. It has a literary purpose. The literary purpose of the genealogy in Genesis 5 is to give us information about the ages and dates of these patriarchs. It is trustworthy. But you know, the idea that there might be gaps in this genealogy is a red herring because of the double dates. Because we have the date of the birth of the seed son and how many years after they lived, it doesn't matter if there are gaps. 
The text does not allow for gaps, but it would not matter anyways. I've made an example of my own family tree. Virgil lived 49 years, and then he grandfathered Jeff. Virgil had other children, and then he lived 39 years after Jeff was born. Virgil lived a total of 88 years, and Virgil died. Now, this is absolutely true, and it doesn't change the date of my great-grandfather's birth. But nowhere in the genealogy is my grandmother Shirley. It wouldn't matter if there are gaps. If anyone tells you it's not trustworthy because there might be gaps, say, well, first, they need to trust God's word over man's. But second, what does it matter? The math is clearly there, and it's there for that purpose. So that we can even withstand the very fallible arguments of man, which are very weak compared to the trustworthiness of God's word. Here's another one. Some say that these years are not actually years, but they're actually months. Well, that means Kenan was five years old when he gave birth to Mahalalel. In fact, the only one that this makes much sense for is Noah at 41 years old. Even Methuselah and Lamech, which have the largest dates if these were months, were each 15. It's insanity. But you know, they start with the presupposition of that can't be true. And then they work back from there. We don't start with that supposition. We start with the supposition of God is trustworthy and man is not. Let God be true and every man a liar. When we start by trusting the Lord, we are starting on good footing. More than that, the text, once again, the text is our best friend. Because Moses is the writer of Genesis 5, just like he's the writer of Genesis 7. And Moses knows the word for month in Hebrew. He says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. He knows the difference between days, years, and months. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Moses isn't stupid. Moses knows how to speak. Moses knows how to record dates. It gets even crazier because Moses records quite a few ages in the same book in Genesis. We're going to look at that a bit more, but first we're going to look at a few more proofs from text that this is intended to be taken literally. Because both the Old and the New Testament reiterate this genealogy. In 1 Chronicles 1, 1 through 4, it's reiterated with no additions, no subtractions. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Hem, and Japheth. The intention is for us to understand that this is the actual genealogy of mankind. Even more importantly than this genealogy in 1 Chronicles, perhaps, is the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke. This shows Jesus' genealogy goes all the way back to Adam making him a kinsman brother of ours so that he can be a kinsman redeemer of ours, but shows that his genealogy also goes back to God because God was the father of Adam. So we have Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Halalel, etc., etc., on down to Adam, who was the son of God. You know, it surprised me the first time I intentionally went to the book of Matthew to ask, how does God start the New Testament? Because he has such a profound way of starting the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I was disappointed to get to Matthew and realize he starts the New Testament with a genealogy. What is that about? It's a record of God's faithfulness. The New Testament is not something isolated in a vacuum from the Old Testament. The New Testament is the fulfillment of what was promised in the Old. And these are the bones and the sinews that attach those promises together. 
that we can trace God's faithfulness and see, yes, he is absolutely faithful to his word. But getting back to Moses' ability to record ages, within a few chapters, he records Abraham's age. Abraham was a hundred years old when he had his seed son, and then 75 years longer he lived for a total of 175 years. Now, if Moses thought it would be an issue of interpretation between Genesis 5 and Genesis 25, wouldn't he use the same method of recording these ages? He's giving this to a single audience, Israel, in the Exodus generation. Wouldn't this be confusing to them? It would. Moses knows that any literal reading of the text cannot allow for anything but a literal reading of the ages. Moreover, Moses records that Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age. The ripe old age of 175 years, which for us is a ripe old age. But Abraham died before Shem died. Before Noah's son, Shem died. When Moses dies, there is evidence in the text that it is surprising how healthy he was for 120 years old. Although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his, eyes, his eye was not dim nor his vigor abated. This was miraculous that at 120 years, he was so healthy. Something is happening in the genealogies. And it's not an error in recording. It's an error that traces all the way back to Adam. But this also shows us how trustworthy these records are, that these men lived such long dates, they didn't need to hear from their father or their grandfather. They could have heard directly from their great, 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 great grandfather. Grandpa, how old are you? You see, Noah's father, Lamech, for 56 years, had the opportunity to verify with Adam, are you really over 900 years old? I mean, this shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to Lamech because his dad was Methuselah. And Lamech himself lived almost 800 years. But on top of that, notice that Shem, the son of Noah, also had 93 years before the flood to confirm Lamech's record back to Adam. This is only one link in the chain. That's a pretty strong chain. Gets even better, as I mentioned, Shem, who has only to trust Lamech for Adam's age, outlives Abraham. In fact, he outlives every single one of the generations from him to Abraham, save only for Eber. And Eber, very reasonably then, because he outlives even Abraham, becomes the namesake for the Hebrew nation. Eber is where we get the word Hebrew. Because when the Hebrew nation was being formed, he was the patriarch. He was the oldest one going backward. So when Abraham was 58 years old and his grandpa Noah died, Abraham and Sarah could recognize their old age at 90 and 100 although Grandpa Noah just died at 950, older than Adam. Obviously, something is changing. So what is changing? And this has to do with the analogy of faith. Now, the analogy of faith by some is called the analogy of Scripture because it's not something that is something devised of faith, but it is devised from Scripture, and that means that it fits the general story, the general thrust of what God is doing in His Word. The analogy of faith is something that we measure up 
what we believe from Scripture against and saying, does this fit the rest of Scripture? This is using Scripture to verify Scripture. That's what the analogy of faith refers to. In Genesis 2-7 then, we see that man became a living being. Present progressive tense. God created him for life. Man did not become a creature who is alive now but is dying. Man became a living being with no end mentioned. 930 isn't an old age to die. Dying is the issue, not the age, not the length of the age. And why is he dying? Because God told him that disobedience will kill you. Sin is going to affect your body so that it cannot sustain itself. And when he does sin, God doubles down on this promise. This is a promise. It's not a promise we like, but it is a promise. And he says, to dust you shall return because of your disobedience. Notice that nature was also affected at this time. Sometimes we think nature wasn't affected at all until the flood. And so the flood is the reason that man's ages started to decrease. Now it might have been a factor, but it was no more a factor than the dispersion at Babel was a factor in the decreased ages. I'll show you that in a second. But the issue with why man's ages are decreasing goes back to Adam, not to Noah. It says, because of Adam, because of sin through Adam, sin spread to all men, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In the first five generations, with the exception of Kenan, the ages are already decreasing. We have a few outliers, Methuselah and Jared and Noah, but these are also our outliers in the text because God is doing something special in their lives. What's going on? We notice with Shem that immediately his lifespan is shortened. This probably has something to do with environmental factors, but far more it has to do with the bottleneck in the genealogy, that all of these billions of people on the earth before the flood were reduced to eight. And in fact, were reduced to only three bloodlines from that eight. Imagine the mutations that have been solidified, made permanent in our bloodline, because all of the other genes that could have mixed and overcome those mutations are now no longer available. Whatever mutations were in these three sons and their three wives are the mutations that we began with after the flood. Sorry, but notice this last name, Peleg. It says that in his days, the earth was divided. What happened in Peleg's day, but the dispersion at Babel? And notice, Peleg's age is almost half of his father. What happened here? Another genetic bottleneck. This time in 70 different groups. But once again, these families are divided and isolated and have no other gene pools to be overcoming the mutations in their genes. All the way down to Abraham and Nahor who has the shortest recorded age of these patriarchs before Abraham. That looks a little bit more like what we're used to today. And this didn't happen over a short period of time either. You see, Abraham was alive 2,000 years after creation. 2,000 years is an easy date for us to comprehend because that's how long it's been between Christ's coming and where we are today. 
That's how long it took for these ages to dwindle. Granted, Adam would have been alive from the time of Christ all the way to the introduction of the English language. He would have been alive to see quite a bit. But the point I'm getting at here is the issue in these dwindling ages isn't the effects of the environment from the flood. Now, there is a possible theory that there was a canopy of water over the earth, but you know these ages dwindling don't depend on that possibility. These ages dwindling are because of the sin within man, not our environmental issues. Put man in a perfect environment, and he's not going to fix his problems. Because the problem is within man. So the question is not why were men living for centuries, but rather why are we not? And the answer is not a radical change in our outward environment, but a radical change in our inward environment. There's nothing we can do to fix this, but there is someone we can trust in who will fix this. As an example of this, Isaiah speaks of the conditions in the Messianic kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth, where the curse will be rolled back. We see no indication that he will be restoring a water canopy over the earth. Now, this might be part of it, but the text does not give us that information. But what is part of it is God ruling and reigning over this earth and man living in righteousness. It says they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. And why is this? Because for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Now we live in the Pacific Northwest where we have a good number of old growth trees. Sometimes as kids, we would go out, we had a, an aunt who lived up in the mountains and we would go get our Christmas tree there and go back in the woods and they had some old growth trees and they would have ages for those trees. One of those trees was over 900 years old. Thankfully, I was born in a Bible-believing family. So when we saw that, we remarked, this one's almost as old as Adam was. So when we see this in the text, us Washingtonians have a good sense of what this means. That as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. We are going to live, rather better said, mortals on earth at that time are going to live for centuries once again. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. But there is a caveat, even in the messianic kingdom, where sin will still be possible among mortals. It says, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. 100 will be a young age to die in the Messianic kingdom. But what else does this tell us? Men will still die in the Messianic kingdom. And what does it hinge upon? What does their long life hinge upon but faithfulness to God? Trust in Jesus Christ as the king, as the ruler of that earth. Yes, the curse will be rolled back. But it's not our outward environment that causes our ages to dwindle but sin having a physical effect on our bodies. Had the flood never come, we would never have had that genetic bottleneck, and we might have been living longer, maybe to the days of Christ. But you know, we'd probably be where we are right now with our ages anyways. Even if we still had that canopy of water over this earth, 
That wouldn't have saved us. Jesus Christ alone can save us. A few more words about the messianic kingdom and what will happen in those days. Because not only is there indication that some will die, there is a hint in the text, I guess you could say, that some will die. We don't know how many. But we even are told in Revelation 20 that there will be a rebellion against King Jesus in the, in the kingdom when none other than Satan is released for a short time after this kingdom. He will lead mortal man astray once again in the perfect environment of the messianic kingdom ruled by the perfect God-man. Some will still choose rebellion. Revelation 27 says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. After a thousand years of Jesus Christ's perfect reign on this earth, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, that, at that point, is when man will begin to no longer die. Because that is when Jesus Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father and they begin to rule together on a united throne over the universe. When he makes the new heavens and the new earth. And the curse is not just rolled back, but is done away with completely. And Paul has this as the hope that he has his audience train their eyes upon. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 he says, For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. How can we trust this? But with the record of God's trustworthiness, how can we trust him for the future unless we look back at his fulfilled promises? But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. That has already happened. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. We are waiting for this to happen. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power at the end of the messianic kingdom. For he must reign on this earth in the domain where he was seemingly defeated by Satan until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death will remain until this earth passes away because of Adam's sin. And we share in Adam's sin. So to wrap all of this up, we are anticipating promise in this passage of scripture. We can ask this question, what is Moses doing here? Why did he include this genealogy? Why was it preserved in the first place? Why, out of 1,600 years of history to choose from, was this the only one that the Holy Spirit preserved for us? I believe that is because this is the most important document that could have ever been preserved for us, a record of God's faithfulness. And this is a record of God's faithfulness that has blessed three categories of people. Adam, who likely recorded this and handed it down to Lamech. It blesses Israel as well, the original audience of the inspired scripture of Genesis. And it blesses us as well, the indirect audience, who gets to learn from these words that were given to Moses. And so for Adam, where we're starting, nothing could have weighed more heavily for him while he is anticipating life after death 
while he is looking the consequences of his sin in the face, while he is coming to his 930th year and perhaps aware, as Paul was, that he is at the end of his days. What could have weighed more heavily on him than the promise that God is faithful to his promises? And that where God has promised that a seed from his line would crush the enemy, he wants to be absolutely certain of God's faithfulness. He trusted ahead of time, not soon enough, not soon enough to avoid the fall. But we see from the very verses following the fall that he did indeed trust God. And he named his wife the mother of all living, not the mother of all dead. Just as Jesus Christ says, God is the God of the living. So how can he be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless there is a resurrection? Eve believed as well. I have gotten a man-child who is the Lord. And as she spiritually matured, her third son recorded, God has appointed to me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. God has appointed to me another offspring. Why is she tracing her offspring? Because God promised that life comes through them. And so it was preserved and sealed with the thumbprint of God, his holy inspiration, when Moses recorded it and handed it down to Israel to show that the God of faithfulness to Adam is also the God of faithfulness to Israel. The one who is faithful to his covenant with Adam will be faithful to his covenant to Israel. And so that's why we have these woven together historical records by the hand of Moses to show the Exodus generation that this is not a new thing for God being faithful to a people. This is something that he has concerned himself with since the days of creation. And so Moses can tell this generation who is about to enter the promised land to know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant. And his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. This was the hope that David rested on as well. When God promised him that he would have an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne, an eternal descendant for his throne, what was his response to God? But now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. David's response was, absolutely, Lord. If you say so, nothing else can come to pass. And Isaiah, who writes to the generation who will be dispersed from the promised land, what is his words of encouragement to Israel? O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago, with perfect faithfulness. Have you ever opened your Bible up to the center and wondered what verse is right there, dead center? A verse about God's faithfulness. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You established the earth and it stands. What could be a better verse to place dead center in your word of your record of faithfulness than a statement that affirms it? And so we draw an application 6,000 years after this record began.
and we can do so from the book of Hebrews. Now notice this is Hebrews 10, right before what is probably the most famous chapter in Hebrews, the record or the hall of faith that lists these patriarchs which put their faith in God. What leads up to that in the text of Hebrews? But an exhortation and a rationale for Christians to be faithful while awaiting the Lord. So the author of Hebrew writes, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. How can we have full assurance of faith? for things future, unless we have full assurance of faith to rest on in the fulfilled promises of history. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's as we rest in these promises of God that we grow spiritually. We saw that Eve was growing spiritually and that the second time she bore a son who was appointed to her, she recognized it as a gift from God, not something that she herself produced. And so we have, again, intimation that Adam and his line were growing spiritually, not because we have evidence of their spiritual growth, but because they preserved the very tool by which we grow spiritually, God's record of faithfulness. And so the Hebrew writer continues and says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What is the result of this hope we put in God's faithfulness? But to edify one another, to grow in community of Christ. Not forsaking our own assembling together, we're all here this morning because of this hope. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And how do we encourage one another? It's not by placating one another, but by continually and always only pointing to Jesus Christ and his promises. Because our promises fail. Though we are told to make our yes, yes, and our no, no, sometimes we promise a little too much. Sometimes we don't make a promise that we probably should. We don't keep a promise that we should have made. God always does. This is the hope that we have, and this is how we encourage one another. Not in saying, I feel your pain, but in saying, Jesus Christ has felt your pain. In fact, the author of Hebrews also says, when considering your suffering, know that you have not suffered unto the shedding of your own blood. But Jesus Christ has. Chapter 4 of Hebrews says, We have a great high priest who is sympathetic to our position. And why is he sympathetic? Because he has undergone every temptation, every challenge that we have as people. He is not only our kinsman redeemer in the flesh, but our kinsman redeemer in experience. He also suffered this world. And he was killed in this world. So we encourage each other with God's love and faithfulness towards us. And what does this do? It says, all the while, or all the more, as you see the day drawing near, as we see the days closing, as we see this world getting more and more fraught with sin, where do we find hope? Do we find hope in the news? probably the last place any of us find any hope these days. Do we find hope in the scientists who more and more become untrustworthy, forgive my vocabulary here, but political hacks? Where do we place our trust? In the only one who has a record of faithfulness, who has a record of an unchanging word. 
And what does this do to us as we hope in God's word, a reasonable hope with a record of faithfulness? What does this do to us? It says, beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. This is our hope of future glorification together with Jesus. This is our hope of an end to the struggles that we have on this earth. And as we hope in this, as we trust in this, it says everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Jesus Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. Faith, hope, trust in the object of Jesus Christ is how we grow spiritually. This is our faith, rest, walk as believers. We look at his record of faithfulness and we say, yes, Lord, you are faithful, so I will trust you for today and I will trust you for tomorrow. So our main point then, the whole Bible is written around a skeleton of genealogies. Without them, we lose the most important record of God's faithfulness. So we don't skip them here at Tacoma Grace Bible Church. We hold on to them. We embrace them and we love the God who felt it necessary to give us a record of his faithfulness so that we have a promise of tomorrow's faithfulness. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness towards us. We are thankful that we have something we can hope in, we can trust in, and that is unwavering and always true. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.